Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Hey, welcome to the show. This is Jeremy. With me in the studio are my good friends, Mr. David Fletcher. Hello. And Mr. Luke Galen. Dr. Luke Galen. I guess you could call us good friends. This is the first episode of the new and improved Reasonable Doubts. And if you guys didn't mind, I was going to actually start off the show really quick with a shit list. We usually do that segment at the end of the episode, but for our listeners' information, I just wanted to uh, say that on my shit list over the holiday season was Spin Express, a service that we were using for our free podcast hosting. And, well, when you have free file hosting, you get what you pay for. And so we had several times when we couldn't post episodes and do a regular quality show, several multiple entries on our podcast feed. So some of you may have opened up iTunes or whatever you use to listen to hear uh, the next installment of our show and realize it was just the last installment of the show. Well, we finally broke the habit and got some real web hosting now. So hopefully we'll be able to bring you a much better quality show at regular time slot. And we're also working on new segments and getting in some new great speakers and all that. So I'm pretty excited about the show for 08. Did you guys uh, get to spend any time with family over the holidays? I did, in fact. Um Got to uh, go up north for a little bit and south for a little bit, and uh, all was right with the world. Luke? Yes, I had a small town down-home Christmas Eve service. Nice. Complete with the carols and the candles. and the At your Lutheran church? That's right. Any awkward religious skeptic moments at all? Around the Christmas dinner table or anything else? Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't sing any of the actual songs. Uh, but the, when the wax dripped on me, I and it got you know from the candle, I felt it was the divine punishment, and there were no <laughs> dissenting voices on that one. So, so yeah, a little tiny taste of hell. Yeah, I somehow managed to avoid awkward uh, religious situations too. But in relation to that, we got a very adorable listener email just oh. the other day that I wanted to share with you guys. Oh, good. We love to hear from the listeners. Yeah. Usually. This is to us from Tracy. And Tracy writes, Hi, guys. I've only had a chance to hear the first three episodes, but I'm really enjoying it. There are a few things I would like to hear if you have time or think it's important. As a recently converted humanist or atheist, I'm going through some things that are going to be difficult for me to deal with. So somebody who's just recently deconverted, as I prefer to call it, mm-hmm. uh, becoming a humanist or an atheist. Here's, here's the difficult things. Number one, I catch myself saying bless you when someone sneezes. Hmm. It doesn't feel right to acknowledge their sneeze, or rather, it doesn't feel right not to acknowledge their sneeze, but I'm not sure what to say. Number two, what exactly is a militant atheist? I fear I may be one. (laughs) Number three, 
What's the proper way to handle when your family and friends gather for a meal and want to hold hands and say grace, and they assume that you're a Christian? Maybe you could have a segment on your show that could help us to be good atheists and cover issues such as these. I think Luke's mentioned something similar uh, about what did, what did you call it? Etiquette for atheists or something like that? Hmm. Well, that, that's a, always a discussion, I think, in our group as to how <clears throat> how militant to be. Uh, and you, but unfortunately, some people will, if they view you as being, you know, the spawn of Satan, even normal behavior could be perceived as being militant. It's right. Militancy is in the eye of the beholder. So even if somebody was perfectly well-behaved, I, I think for the prayer thing or if somebody is doing a table prayer, most people just, you know, simply kind of bow their head and try to right. fit in. You know, you don't have to stand up and scream. Not make an issue out of it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. For me, it all depends on context. If it's with my family and I don't want to make a stink, um, you know, my family always closes their eyes and bows their heads. I do my silent protest, keep my eyes open and right. uh, let them do their thing. And if everyone else's eyes are closed, no one is the wiser. If it's a hand-holding thing with family, then often I will uh, slip out to the restroom right before dinner starts, and that usually works out pretty nicely. <laughs> At least you don't take out rubber gloves. You know. no, right, right. <laughs> um, but if it is another function, if it's um, something where, where I feel that religion is not appropriate, if it's at work, something like that, I, I feel it's entirely appropriate to excuse yourself from the room, um, to object openly, depending on the environment. I think it's entirely appropriate um, to say, because respect goes both ways. If you're respecting um, their religious beliefs, then they have to respect your lack of religious beliefs. You know, there was a segment on uh, The Ethicist on NPR with Randy Cohen. He sometimes does ethical problems where mm -hmm. somebody wrote in and said that they were at a dinner, a function from people from work where the boss said, uh, you know, we're going to pray now. When the person just sat there silently and respectfully, the boss said, pray, uh, getting them to talk. And so then the question was, how do you react to a situation like that where there's coercion involved with yeah. your employer? <laughs> that that that's definitely a draw the line situation where not, something needs to be said. That's illegal. Sure, but, but it also comes up because, um, say, your boss happens to be Protestant and you're a Catholic, or you're a Muslim, or or you're Jewish. I mean, these same issues come up for all groups, and I think the best way to avoid it is simply not to have prayer before social functions, unless it's a religious group. I was I was a uh, test driving a car yesterday and uh yeah, your new car i hit in the parking lot out there <laughs> oh <f> you <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> uh, but uh we were in the car uh with the guy and he asked my wife and i during the test drive what church we went to <laughs> which in grand rapids is not all that uncommon of a thing to hear wow. now now granted though this guy wasn't completely crossing the line here because in an earlier conversation we both told him he asked where we went to school, and we said Cornerstone University, which is a Christian university. Um, my wife and I both deconverted while in a Christian college. So it wasn't completely out of the line. But he felt very awkward as soon as we said, oh, well, we, we don't go to church. And he felt – you could tell he knew that he had crossed a line asking that. And I don't know. Our, our reaction was to actually try to – because of the particular context, say, no, you know, okay, it, it, 
it wasn't such a bad question to ask. Uh, it's just, you know, we don't go to church. And uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't see beating people up over it, but maybe reminding them every once in a while that not everybody just does believe the same way they do. I was going to say that's a great, great instance where it, were you militant, you could have, you know, tried to deconvert oh, yeah. him and all that. But instead, it just it's a helpful little reminder to him that not everyone goes to church without beating him over the head with it, without making him feel bad. At least it's making him cognizant of the fact that even though he's in Grand Rapids, it doesn't mean that everyone he encounters <laughs> necessarily right. is a churchgoer. That's consciousness raising. And exactly. it, it's done through civility and, and mutual respect. Whereas, you know, if every time somebody said, oh, would you like to say grace at the dinner table? You stand up and you do uh, – some sort of Ayn Rand <laughs> speech from the fountainhead. I will not degrade my reason, my rational capacities by your vulgar show of superstition. Um, I just do a good food, good meat, good God, let's eat. <laughs> dive into it. And as far as the sneezing thing goes, um, what what I say is Gesundheit. So it's a German um, <laughs> yeah. and it, it means Wait, to your health. It is, doesn't that's not mean Yiddish or something? You. That could be Jewish. Uh, yeah. like, <laughs> I don't know. Um, so so it, that works because, I mean, people are right. used to that. It doesn't throw them, you know, uh, or actually often if people sneeze, I will say stop that. Um, and that doesn't really get the same reaction, but um, it works. And, and when other people bless me for sneezing, it's just like when people say Merry Christmas. I, I right. take it in the way it's intended. If it's meant as an attack, as it uh, – especially Merry Christmas increasingly is these days, then I, I take it as right. such. But but for the most part, people are trying to be polite and trying to be well, nice. And you know, what's interesting is if my comment here might sound pretty favorable to some conservative commentators, but I'm not so sure many atheists would get as upset if – a Hindu were to say namaste to them or if uh, mm. or if they were to hear I don't know what's what's a what's another expression who's uh, got is what the Bavarians say yeah well they'd have no idea what that was probably. <laughs> <laughs> or if somebody were to say what's the, what's the Jewish expression probably wouldn't be saying mazel tov shalom. shalom 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 I don't know which is which is basically a greeting yeah would we feel that there was an issue there I'm not so sure Several years ago, I had attended a Buddhist Sangha for the very first time just to see what it was like and be exposed to that. And there was a little part of the ceremony where everybody did a little bow to the, to the statue, and that was part of what they did. And I felt very self-conscious about it, like I should just stay where I'm at and not do this because I'm not one of these people. As time went on and I continued to uh, attend there, it just seemed to me like, well, this is their tradition and I'm being invited into this place. Now, if they start going on a personal attack on me or my beliefs and I have a chance to defend myself, I will. But when I'm being invited into this place, into th this tradition, I don't uh, feel bad deferring to it. it. It sounds like Tracy here has deconverted. And as somebody who's deconverted myself, there can initially be some real emotional baggage and anger mm -hmm. uh, because you had to split from that, you know, and there's expectations of you and everything else. Whereas I think after a little bit of distance is put between 
the deconversion event and who you are, you can settle down a little bit and be like, well, I'm being welcomed into this home. I'm being asked to pray. This is their custom. I don't have to pray myself, but I don't have to make a stink about it either. Right. If if they ask you to pray out loud, if they ask you to lead the prayer or something, yeah. I would say, I'm not comfortable with that. I'm sorry. It's... Um, Please do it yourself. Now, there is a book that I've read, and I'm blanking on the title, so I will post it onto the website when I track it down, that deals with all of these issues of, <laughs> of etiquette for humanists and, and atheists. And um, it was a wonderful book. I, um, Going to hell for idiots. <laughs> something like that. No, when I, when I track it down, I will, Heresy I will post style. that. Uh, because it's a good book, and I, I would definitely recommend it. I'm glad she sent that in to us because that's the type of question that is important to people, and it's on people's minds how to deal with it. And uh, But it's not something that's always just openly addressed. Right. I have another email here. Hello, I just listened to your first five episodes, and so far I find it interesting. You don't seem to be overlapping with any of the other shows I listen to. Uh, he mentioned Skepticality, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, This Week in Science, etc. He says, one criticism I have, though, is that you've never mentioned on the show why we should be listening to you. Hmm. At the very least, I would have expected in the first episode to have a rundown of exactly who you are and why you're doing this. And instead, you jumped in as if it was all a given. I shouldn't have to go to your website and find out there's a link to CFI, for example. Anyways, I'm looking forward to seeing where you're going with the show. So we appreciate that uh, email as well. My and initial response to why you should be listening is like the advice columnist Dan Savage says, you ask for advice of me and I give it. Therefore, I have <laughs> credentials to give advice. You're listening to our show. Therefore, oh, but those are, these are skeptics. Is that no, going to be good true. enough? No, I, I suppose mean, you got to know the background and the bias of yeah, who you're. Although even skeptics should recognize the ad hominem type arguments. That is, it shouldn't matter who we are as long as the content is sound. <laughs> uh, the fact that I'm yeah. a professor is irrelevant. If I if I say things that aren't true, then you can ignore it. That's okay. I I see. So maybe it's the arguments that that are important. I I don't know. I I kind of I kind of agree with them at least. Uh, yeah. From just the bare minimum of I I like to know, uh, you know, are these people being fronted? Are they being financially supported in any sort of way? Do they have an agenda that they have to uh, mm-hmm. uh, speak to? Well, basically, this is an independent podcast. This show was originally going to be the official podcast for a group called the Free Thought Association of West Michigan. I was contacted by an individual and asked to interview certain guests and speakers for for the group. At that time, Dave volunteered to uh, join on and help in any sort of capacity that he could. Uh, But that podcast quickly fell apart because the Free Thought Association of West Michigan Uh, was absorbed by a larger entity, CFI, a Center for Inquiry. And it's now Center for Inquiry, Michigan. And CFI already has a stellar podcast uh, called Point of Inquiry, which we just happen to have their host, DJ Grothy, as our guest interview today. So I'm looking forward to that. What a coincidence. But we had already, you know, had a studio (laughs) and equipment and everything else. And so after a quick change of format and persuading Luke to get on board and... um, I'm still not sure about this. We know. (laughs) 
We know. Please, everybody, send Luke glowing fan mail. Uh, he he's high. He's a high maintenance co-host, and we need to we need him to let him know how much he's appreciated. Uh, By the way, you're looking really thin today. You really? are because I've I've been on a diet, and thanks for noticing. <laughs> you know, I noticed these things. Um, I'll stay for today. That's the short version. For listeners who aren't familiar with the Grand Rapids area, West Michigan, we we live in a an interesting environment. And to give you the the more epic history of the Reasonable Doubts podcast, Dave and I are now going to give you a little presentation, a history of Reasonable Doubts done in the style of a 1930s propaganda radio show. Our story begins in the Netherlands. Ah, the Netherlands. Geographically challenged American youth may know the Netherlands as the home to Amsterdam. What happens in Amsterdam stays in Amsterdam. Unless you try to mail it to yourself, which is a felony. The Netherlands was a refuge for intellectuals during the Age of Enlightenment. But social tolerance and intellectual freedom was not for everyone. Namely... The Calvinists. Unwilling to walk a mile in any man's clocks, the Calvinists in the Netherlands looked for a new home, where they could grow their tulips in peace, never being called upon to question or think for themselves again. So they set sail for America. Somehow they landed on the sandy shores of the Great Lakes, coincidentally in a place called Holland, Michigan, where they promptly erected a windmill to commemorate the occasion. Yay! Too joyous. Today, West Michigan proudly continues the Calvinist tradition of religious tolerance, embracing in peaceful coexistence both approaches to religion, Reformed Protestantism and Dutch Reformed Protestantism. Nowhere is this better seen than in Grand Rapids, crown jewel of the Bible Belt of the North where a curious young intellect can seek nourishment from many diverse sources, such as Calvin College, Reformed Bible College, Grace Bible College, or Cornerstone University, formerly known as Grand Rapids Baptist College. It is this commitment to intellect that makes Grand Rapids home to Amway, Blackwater, and the manufacturers of office furniture used everywhere. Grand Rapidians lived in predestined tranquility for many years until one fateful moment. Hey, nice to meet you. What church do you go to? Um, I don't. (gasps) Maybe there should be a place for me. It was the thought heard around the world, or at least around the campfire, and Free Thought Association of West Michigan was born. Soon their numbers grew. After ten years of dedication to thought, freedoms, and free thought, the time came for a podcast to be born. But who amongst their ranks would arise to meet the challenge? Luckily, a band of men, smart, young, sexy, and humble, with modest incomes and big dreams, stepped forward. They would create a show that was regional, topical, thoughtful, and would appeal to absolutely no one. Unprepared for the predicament they found themselves in, they did what any underage daughter of a minister would do, and their collective brainchild was promptly and secretly aborted. In time, they became more wise in the ways of the world, and knew that the moment had arrived for a new heroic vision of a better, stronger, more durable podcast. 
with mediocre hosts, but exceptional theme music. And Reasonable Doubts was born. Like a bastard child, cut off from the supple teat of the Free Thought Association of West Michigan, now CFI Michigan, Reasonable Doubts set out to make its mark. Premature, immature, and with an inflated sense of its own independence. Their youthful rebelliousness making young girls swoon across the globe. Look, I don't know what these boys are telling you, but they only want you for your mind. No, Dad, Reasonable Doubts loves me! That's right, Susan. Reasonable Doubts does love you. That's because, like Susan, Reasonable Doubts offers the whole package. Emotional, moral, intellectual, and sexual appeal. And so our story comes full circle. Like the freethinkers back home in the Netherlands, Reasonable Doubts carries on the tradition of the Enlightenment, promoting scientific inquiry, rationality, and skepticism. Reminding people everywhere that whether you wear shoes, clogs, moccasins, or just go barefoot, you too can be a critical thinker. You too can challenge dogma. You too can refuse to take things on faith. You too can entertain reasonable doubts. As reasonable doubts entertains you. The last episode we had, we announced a segment called The Gospel of Doubt about why doubt, why skepticism, why critical thinking is important in your life. Why is it a valuable thing? What is the good news about skepticism? Fletch? Yes, sir. You're an apostle of doubt. I I am now. I wasn't always this way. I was actually raised in a Christian Reformed bubble, which is a lot like being raised in a plastic bubble, except that you can see through plastic. Um, (laughs) From preschool all the way to high school graduation, I was sent to Christian schools, attended service at a Christian Reformed church twice every Sunday in the morning and at night, and for a couple of years until a traumatic soap-carving event finally convinced my parents to stop forcing me to go, I was even a member of the Calvinist answer to the Boy Scouts. Wait, okay. That's that's good. And there's a lot there. But first, soap carving accident? Uh, um, I don't want to talk about it. Okay. The, the, the scars are still pretty deep. <laughs> well, then, then let's move on to option number two, which is mm. Calvinist equivalent of Boy Scouts. Yeah, absolutely. The cadets is what they were called. Um, <laughs> it was the cadets and then the uh, female equivalent was the Calvinettes. Are You're Mary, kidding. Uh, I am not are Mary kidding. badges predetermined? You, uh, well, you, <laughs> yeah, man, you beat me to my cadet joke. That's, that's my only cadet joke. Uh, yes, in fact, that's true. Um, I believe the Calvinettes are now, now called the, the gems or something, something <laughs> fairly innocuous. Something that doesn't sound like uh, candy. Yeah, or, or, you know, John Calvin's backup singers. <laughs> John Calvin and the Calvinettes. So, yeah, um, I was pretty heavily um, indoctrinated all through my childhood. And one of the downsides of a private school education is that I got a really good education. And as a result, I learned how to think critically. And so I started asking 
questions of my religion teacher and my Sunday school teachers and my catechism teachers. By the way, we used to have cat retreats at my church, which were catechism retreats where we would spend the weekend memorizing parts of the Heidelberg Catechism. Oh, that sounds like loads of fun. Oh, it was, it was awesome. And memorization, really the best way to create understanding, I feel. Oh, uh, true. Um, Rote regurgitating. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So as I would ask questions like, you know, how can evil exist? I'd get a lot of answers like, well, God works in mysterious ways, which is not terribly intellectually satisfying. But in a lot of ways, I would accept that because I knew that that doubting, that being skeptical was was wrong. And if I was having these doubts, then I was probably not one of God's elect few and therefore we'd be going to hell. Uh, so if I stopped doubting, stopped questioning, then everything would work out all right. And then after witnessing a good amount of hypocrisy within my church and a lot of family drama, I kind of gave up on organized religion mm-hmm. and I became that... Uh, I don't like organized religion. I just I just think I'm spiritual kind of guy. I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Yeah. To which yeah. I think David Cross, the comedian, said, I'm not telling the truth, but you're interesting. So, yeah, I had that for a while. And, and then to me, God was this thing that I yelled at when things went wrong. I, I was very angry. I was very frustrated. And then kind of a, I became sort of an atheist agnostic, but um, I was the exact kind of atheist that I now hate, which was the God doesn't exist because I hate him kind of approach. Well, I didn't know that. So you came through like a grudge. Yeah, a absolutely. Grudge type of thing. Absolutely. And they say, you know, a lot of the great atheist thinkers, uh, Nietzsche, Marx, Freud, have, have daddy issues. And I certainly had that. And, and I think that's what brought on a lot of my um, hatred of this, you know, father in the sky kind of thing. And it wasn't until, and this is staggeringly cliche, but it's it's true, uh, 9-11 was really when I and from what I gather a lot of other people really started to have those deconversion um, mm-hmm. experiences. And that was when I saw religion not just as an annoyance, but as a potentially very dangerous force in mm. the world. And that's when I started reading up on things and studying, and I stumbled upon the Humanist Manifesto um, 2 by Paul Kurtz, and that, that made me go, oh, there are people out there who think like mm-hmm. I do. And then whereas I had been cynical for a long time, but I wasn't skeptical. Mm-hmm. Now, after 9-11, all that, I became a skeptic. I started investigating. I started doubting, and then studying. And that has really, I'm no longer that angry, God is dead, and if he's not, I wish he were kind of kid that I was mm-hmm. for for a good long while. So the process of, of doubt and skepticism has really opened me up to not only a more useful worldview, but a more positive worldview too. That's great. I, I um, Dave and I have actually never talked about this until now, which I'm kind of surprised. But uh, in, in some ways, what happened to me is a lot different. But in other ways, it's it's really similar because what I hear, heard you saying, which is similar to my experience, is that, um, <clears throat> believe it or not, getting involved with the secular movement in the form of humanism and 
critical thinking and everything actually had a had a moderating influence on you. Yeah, it, it mellowed absolutely. you out more mm-hmm. than it than it fired you uh, up in the sense of becoming radicalized and militant and aggressive. M- my deep conversion experience came in in college as I was preparing to be a minister. I was at Bible college. I was getting a degree in religious education and then secondary education because hmm. uh, I didn't expect to be a megachurch pastor. Uh, I expected to pretty much volunteer as a right. pastor and have to have a real job. But obviously, if I wanted to do that, I, I had a pretty positive relationship with my religion. And sure. I, I did find it satisfying. I, did, I didn't have turmoil being in the church or anything. Now I look back and I, I remember moments like in my junior high youth group where we had a picture of a cartoon kid on the overhead slide. And, uh, and my pastor said, this is a homosexual. And uh, <laughs> how should we relate to this person and everything? And, and now I, I remember moments like that and I go, oh, my God, I was being brainwashed. Right. But I didn't even realize it. Was but it a picture of the earring magic Ken doll? I, I, I can't remember, no. but it was some goofy kid on a bike. No. Um, Maybe a queen reference. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but in other words, up until the moment that I was deconverted, I was actually pretty satisfied with Christianity. Mm. In fact, I think what drove me to non-belief was was actually a fair degree of faith because when I would encounter what I then called apparent contradictions in the text, I really didn't believe they were contradictions. I, I believed that they were just that. They were apparent. While other peers of mine seemed to really want to rush and try to harmonize these verses and try to cram them together, I was like, well, let's slow down a little bit. This is God's truth. If we just look for a better answer, you know, it it might come. So at one point, I decided that as part of my service to God, I would learn about philosophy and critical thinking to become a stronger intellect. Hmm. Uh, and then approach the Bible and theology that way because I, I did I did see a lot of my classmates and other people in the ministry program swallowing things really quickly, and I wanted to inoculate myself from some of that. Uh, and, and that's really, uh, make a long story short, what did me in uh, because as soon as I started learning about philosophy – Learning about good critical thinking and learning about integrity, all these, all these values that I had thought were my Christian values, you know, love, worship God with all your heart, you know, your soul and your mind. Be a person of integrity. Be honest. Let your yeses be yes and your noes be no. Don't, you don't have to make oaths because you're a truthful person. As soon as I learned critical thinking and what intellectual integrity meant, that you use the same standards to judge your own arguments as anyone else's, it really quickly, religion started falling apart for me. I recognized that there were all sorts of double standards and and uh, and low standards of evidence for accepting what I believed, and uh, eventually just made a clean intellectual break. But the context I was in was a Christian university, mm-hmm. and all my friends were preparing for ministry, and so. Uh, it was a really toxic environment at first, and I got very angry at that point. But it was much like you, Dave. The, uh, I met a group, uh, a, a local atheist group, the Free Thought Association that we mentioned, which was 10 people sitting around a table at that oh, point. Wow. It was the early days. 
It was, yeah, it was, the early days were a while. I came in towards oh, yeah. the end of the late early days. I came in there as the asshole atheist. <laughs> I'd never <laughs> met an atheist before in my life up to that point, or at least wow. who had acknowledged it and talked about it. And suddenly I was the firebrand and, and these guys were, um, these guys were pussies or, or whatever, you know, they didn't, they didn't have guts. And, and actually just spending time with mature people who had gotten over their religious frustrations and wanted to do something constructive with it had a real it mellowed me out pretty quickly yeah and the, and that kind of brings us back to Tracy's email too if she's worried that she's a um, militant atheist or anything like that I like the the radical push because it it moves us to push for social change and all of that yeah but, but if she's worried about that I would say Find a group. Find um, – I don't know where she's emailing us from, but uh, you can get online. I think CFI has a nice list of affiliated groups. American Atheist on their website has a list of all of the groups um, in a given state. There's plenty of independent free thought groups. Uh, Facebook is groups. another way to find people. Facebook, MySpace, whatever you can – it's a good way to help focus this – militant energy you're feeling. Yeah. I, I would put in a little bit of caution is uh, I don't think every group would have that effect. Um, oh, true. There's some that might do quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. I, I would, you know, I would say get to know the character of an organization and get to get a sense of what the leaders uh, of it and the, the volunteers, what their attitudes are and judge if it's, it's right for you because – I've walked into some meetings uh, other places and read some emails <laughs> and things that shock me. Mm -hmm. But yeah, approach even these groups with a little bit of skepticism. Right. Now, we've talked some about how doubt kind of brought us out of uh, our pasts and so forth. Luke, I'm wondering if you can talk some about where doubt can take us in the future. What are the benefits of, of being a skeptic? Well, if you look at some of the psychological research on that, uh, actually people that are more religious do tend to have, and this is often touted by uh, apologists, they tend to have lower anxiety and, and hmm. decreased rates of uh, depression. And more so when you look at things like existential satisfaction, they know where they're going sort of things. Less so for the, like the major categories of you know mental illness. But they right. seem to be, in other words, as you would expect, have an existential cushion that doubters don't. However... You do start to see some cracks in that foundation when you look at things like response to tragedy, you know, uh, parents who lose mm -hmm. a kid who are really religious who get reassured that actually people that are um, doubters tend to be better at some interpersonal things, sympathy for victims. It's paradoxical in that it might make – faith tends to make people fatuously happy. It okay. leads to them denying injustice in the world, whereas doubters actually do show a little bit higher rates of – uh, anxiety and, as you would expect, they're not sometimes not sure about things. They don't have that existential safety net. However, that tends to make them more open to other people. So when the plane is going down and whatever like that, you might you might be better off sitting next to a skeptic rather than somebody who's certain in their beliefs. Which is very counterintuitive. Yes, it is, and that's troubling for people who are religious because they're they think that the tenets of their religion should make them more open to others. If Jesus says be open to sure. even strangers, they should be. But that's not the way it is because – and this is normal psycho psychology is that if – as we've discussed on the show, if the person next to you, you think they're going to hell as much as your religion says to be nice to them, you can't because mm -hmm. it violates your notion of justice that Dave could be a nice person. So you want to distance yourself. Skeptics 
probably because they have the experience of, of being um, uh, on the outside themselves, they tend mm. to distance them, themselves less from outsiders. Hmm. And, and are you saying that skeptics um, are better at dealing with tragedy? Uh, it gets into the cognitive dissonance. Sometimes people are uh, – religion is good for tragedy up to a certain point. So let's say worst case scenario, uh, your infant dies or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, Religious people have better social support. Their benefits appear to be mediated by practical things like church people coming over. Right. However, uh, there's a subgroup of those parents who have lost kids. Uh, some studies show that they um, – do self-blaming because they can't reconcile. Well, this was an innocent baby. I can't. My problem of evil can't be solved by you know the baby did something wrong. Right. Why would God do such a thing? Some religious answers are satisfactory to some people, but not others. There's a subgroup of people where that's just too much for them, and they and actually the religion hurts them more because uh, if you believe that the world works in a just way, and clearly you look around and it doesn't, mm-hmm. and your religion, a skeptic like us would say, well, the world isn't just. It's what we make of it. If you're religious and you have the worldview that says, well, it should be, or somebody, a benevolent deity is in charge, that can lead to problems. So skepticism is actually psychologically helpful in a lot of ways. In some senses. In some situations. In some senses. How much of the happiness that religious people experience is related to just the simple fact that a lot of them have communities where they can get together regularly yeah. and and worship and meet other people that can help them out. You're asking good skeptic questions. A lot of the researchers simply assume that it's to, due to the content of religion. If religious people as, as a whole, if you compare them to a group of non-religious people and the religious people are happier, well, hey, let's get more of a dose of religion. However, mm. a lot of this research doesn't control for the fact that you can't find, it's difficult to find a group of non-religious people that is similar in every other aspect, having group support, not being ostracized by the community, etc. So a lot of the more sophisticated research shows that as you start to control for other things like that, so for example, a group of people who are non-religious, not, not just weakly religious that are unsure about things, but stone-cold non-religious people that actually do have group support, you start to see less and less of a clear benefit to religion as opposed to your religion. So if you looked at a church congregation and, say, CFI Michigan group, um, then you might see a little bit uh, less of the difference. Is that what you're saying? Because there's the community aspect. Or hell, even a regularly meeting bingo uh, I mean, does it ha- does this have to be related to worldview or or is just general friendships Unclear. and community? Unclear. Those are some of the things that we don't know. You know, and this extends even to the research on like physical health. A lot of earlier research shows there's a benefit to being religious physically, lower rates of heart attack, stress. Mm-hmm. However, when you start to control obvious behavioral problems, so like they smoke less, you know, take like Mormons and Seventh-day Adventists, oh, sure, they right. live a squeaky clean lifestyle. Well, sure, there's a health benefit to being religious, but it's not the content of religion as much as it is the ancillary right, aspects of Right, religion. the behavior that follows. So more and more research is starting to, to look at things like that where you control for that. Uh, uh, often European studies look at how healthy the irreligious French are or the mm-hmm. you know, Danes compared mm-hmm. to America. So uh, whenever you hear somebody saying religion has this or that benefit, you have to realize that's a religion in this country where a major- if you're not religious, you're by definition a minority or even a persecuted minority. Well, I guess the gospel of doubt is not done being written. So, hmm. um, But I think next week Luke is going to share a lot more of that type of research. So if you're interested in what we've been talking about, tune back in for the psychology of religion next week on Reasonable Doubts.
DJ Grothy, thank you very much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Well, thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be on the show. A lot of our listeners, no doubt, know you as the host of Point of Inquiry, the radio show and podcast for the Center for Inquiry. For some reason, our listeners haven't listened to Point of Inquiry. Don't delete our show off your uh, <laughs> off your iTunes Indeed, by don't. any means, yeah. but please make sure you add theirs on. It's by far one of the most amazing podcasts from a secular perspective that I've heard. Just production and the the guests that he gets to talk to, uh, it's incredible. But. We know that you do a lot more than just the podcast. What are some of the other roles that you play at Center for Inquiry? Well, first off, I appreciate the thing, the you know, nice things you said about Point of Inquiry, and I should comment that I have almost nothing to do at all with Point of Inquiry. <laughs> uh, there's a fellow at Center for Inquiry named Thomas Donnelly who does all the work and lines up all the guests and does all the preparation, all the editing. You know, I get to have a half an hour interesting conversation with an amazing person each week. That's my gig, he does all the hard stuff. So wanted to get that out of the way because I get all the kudos. You know, <laughs> right, I'm not right. sure I deserve them, but you're right. My real job is vice president and director of outreach programs. We have a number of programs of public education and, and advocacy outreach programs that uh, reach out to various publics. We have an African-American outreach program headed, headed by Norm Allen. We uh, we're gearing up to uh, start a GLBT, Secularist and Humanist Outreach Program. We have our campus outreach, of course. Centers for Inquiry across North America and around the world. There are 10 now in North America, and we work with those and the, the growing network of CFI communities. Our campus groups now are about at 200. So all of these programs uh, seek to reach different publics advancing the, the cause, the, the values of the Center for Inquiry. On the podcast today, we've been talking about values of doubt. There's a virtue behind doubt. Uh, how did you come to appreciate skepticism, critical thinking, rationality in your own personal life? Mm. What made that so important to you? Well, you gave me so many ideas just now. They're like a bunch of chubby people trying to get through one door. <laughs> That's you know, the ideas coming out of my mouth. But first thing I'd comment on is the value of doubt. Skepticism, skepticism not equaling cynicism, not rejecting out of hand, not saying no, but an open-minded skepticism that says, I'm going to withhold judgment on this or that claim until I look at the evidence. That's a virtue of doubt. And in fact, doubt is the chief means to arriving at the truth. Doubt mm -hmm. is not the rejection of the truth, but it's the start of finding the truth. So personally, I got into skepticism as a teenager when I got into magic. Uh, I joined magic clubs, and I, for, for years I was a professional magician, performed for IBM and Southwestern Bell, Ralston Prina, corporate entertainment. And I loved the, the window on perception that gave me. So I became very interested in how people are deceived, why people believe what they believe, and how susceptible people are to to having the wool pulled over their eyes. So that was kind of the beginning. And then, you know, any magician worth his salt looks at the history of magic and sees that there's a relationship between the history of magic and the history of kind of organized skepticism. So going back to 
uh, Harry Houdini as kind of the first skeptic activist as a magician. You look at James Randi, the paragon of the kind of the radicalized magician who mm-hmm. uses his background to engage in this public wor- work almost, this work for the public good of advancing skepticism. So I started using my background in magic to look at these paranormal claims. Now, not to belabor my personal biography too long, but uh, (laughs) around the same period of time, I joined a fundamentalist church and eventually went to that church's Bible college. And while at Bible college, I, you know, I'm still kind of into magic and skepticism, but it was, you know, in retrospect, it was always interesting to me how that skepticism never applied to religion. It only applied to people who were pretending to be psychics or mm-hmm. or faith healers or the palpably uh, deceptive kinds of religion. So I'm in a, a class at Bible college and my favorite professor uh, back then used a textbook called Understanding the Times, a textbook by David Noble, uh, co-author with Tim LaHaye of a book, Mind Siege. You might know Tim LaHaye is the author of oh, Left yeah. Behind. That, that one, big, one of our favorites. Yeah, yeah, big, great series of apocalyptic fiction, mm-hmm. stressing the word fiction. Mm-hmm. And in this book, uh, Understanding the Times, in this class, there was an explanation of various worldviews that people have. And, and so it's a Christian class, and so it's advancing Christian, biblical Christianity, I guess is the term they used. And the author, David Noble, reduced all of the manifold ways people believe in the world to really just four. So there was <laughs> secular humanism. There was the New Age, there was biblical Christianity, and then there was Marxism. And there were chapters wow. in, uh, uh, about various fields of thought from each of these four perspectives. So the Marxist take on economics, the secular humanist take on ec- economics, the Christian biblical take on economics, on and on and on. And so I'm going through this book in class, and I'm reading all these sections on secular humanism, the secular humanist worldview when it comes to ethics, when it comes to and these other questions. And right around this time, I had a crisis of faith. Uh, I'm reminded of Diderot's line, there's nothing like a good Jesuit education to make you an atheist. So I, was, <laughs> I, got, a, I got a good liberal arts education. I mm-hmm. became a skeptic. And I'm reading these sections in the book about secular humanism, and I say, doggone it, that sounds pretty, look, pretty <laughs> good. I could sink my teeth into that. And in the book, David Noble mentions a magazine called Free Inquiry. And so I go to the Bible College Library, and when you know they subscribed to Free Inquiry, kind of on the know thy mm-hmm. enemy basis. Wow. And I start reading it, and uh, my deconversion gets completed. Then I go on to grad school and get involved with CFI's campus outreach program in grad school. At Washington University in St. Louis, I was involved in starting a campus group. We called it Washington University League of Freethinkers, WOLF for short. Our, our motto was be a wolf, not a sheep. So the Campus Crusade for Christ loved that. So, but, but anyway, that's, that's, the, that's the long and short of, of kind of how I got here. And it began with skepticism. So I, maybe I shouldn't repeat this because when I said it originally, I thought it might not be the best way to say it. But the skepticism was like a gateway drug to the hardcore <laughs> drug of, uh, you know, of the doubting of the religion. The skepticism of the paranormal was the start. Because you can obviously see a need for right. that. Uh, right. Even even a lot of uh, religious people, even fundamentalists, see that you know there are quacks and charlatans and 
and other people, and and uh, and it's very tangible. My church, as a teenager, they actually visited the Center for Inquiry. They had a TV show and interviewed Paul Kurtz <laughs> as an expert proving one of their points about skepticism about mainstream Christianity. So I was in kind huh. of a, a fringe uh, religion. It was wow. called the Worldwide Church of God. And so, yes, uh, you, even even the fundamentalists can be skeptical about ghosts or UFOs. And, right. of course, people who sure. are into the New Age and might believe in ghosts or UFOs can be skeptical of the fundamentalists. Right. At Center for Inquiry, though, we're equal opportunity skeptics. We say if you have answers, we have questions. Now, not to make this too much of... DJ Grothy, this is your life, but another... <laughs> well, my mom will enjoy that. Oh, good, good. <laughs> a- another we'll make sure to send her interesting <laughs> aspect of, of your biography is so many people involved in the, in the skeptical movement are coming from a science background. And you, I, I believe, majored in English literature. Is that correct? Yeah, I did English and psychology undergrad and then history, uh, kind of a liberal arts thing right. in uh, graduate school. At this conference with the other student leaders, I think I was one of two people who wasn't uh, science or engineering right. majored. Well, what I, what I appreciate seeing on the campuses as we're growing our campus outreach program, which should be said is infinitely smaller than our cultural competitors. Look, Campus Crusade for Christ has an annual operating budget approaching $380 million, right? They spend that each That's year. That's not what we have? Yeah, <laughs> uh, we have something infinitely smaller. No. But the point I'm making is that CFI's issues... While we, you're right, we have uh, a great deal of support from the science community and, and uh, kind of the, the social sciences, CFI's issues really cross the whole liberal arts and science mm-hmm. curricula. Yeah. So people who are into history and a secular understanding of our founding are, can appreciate CFI's agenda. And social sciences and philosophy and ethics and psychology and art, you know, art no less than the sciences. You need a tough mind, yes, but also a tender heart. So, so it's, it, it, we shouldn't be top-heavy in that regard. I think that was the point you were getting at. It's, yeah, it's not it, just the, the science types that are of our ilk. Right, right. And, and that's the, the, one of the strengths of humanism and secular humanism is the human, the humanities. It's, it's all there. And mm. How did your overall view towards life and purpose and meaning change? How is it different now than when you were religious? I haven't uh, talked publicly about this too much, um, but but early on, you know, when I had my crisis of faith or my, you know, what some of my Christian buddies called my dark night of the soul, predicting that at some point I'd become an even stronger advocate for Jesus at some point in my life. And I, I still have uh, people predicting as much, so wouldn't that, wouldn't that be <laughs> fun? Early on, I went through a six- or nine-month period maybe where I looked around the universe and I said, it's lost its charm. Well, looked around the universe. I looked around my apartment, right? <laughs> but I said, That's a part of the my, universe. My, my place in the universe, it's not filled with the majesty I once thought it was. Because when I was in this cult, and I don't mean that in an incendiary way, but when I was in this fringe church, a cult by definition, you know, people who study cults, uh, it fit the bill. Well, I was told things that really appealed to every ounce of grandiosity I ever had as a teenager, right? I was told, like Mormons are told, one day you will become a god. You know, not that you'll, not that you'll, you know, go to heaven, but 
I will be God as God is God. You know, Mormons have this line, what God was, man now is, what God mm-hmm. is, man will be. Well, my interesting and idiosyncratic church taught something along those lines. But that perspective on life as a teenager kind of made me feel, you know, amazingly chosen and special by God. And I'm sure that's not unique among Christianity in general. You know, you don't have to be in a fringe cult to be told Jesus loves you and has his eye on you and thinks you're special and, you know, you're the center of the universe. It just so happens everybody else is too. Now, when I lost all of that, and I lost it for good reasons, and in retrospect, I love both my time in the church and, and the hard process of kind mm-hmm. of losing my faith. Well, when I lost that worldview that said, I'm the bee's knees to the creator of the universe, I looked around and everything was kind of dimmer. You know, the, the world was cold and without hope. I wondered, well, what's the point? And I think, and maybe I'm being melodramatic about it, but I went through a little spell of nihilism where mm-hmm. I thought, you know, why be good? Why be decent? You know, why, why care about anything? If I tell this to some of my atheist buddies, this doesn't register right. because they maybe they grew that. up non-religiously right. or like Richard Dawkins uh, could be asked, well, what's the meaning of life? And he might say, why do you need an ultimate meaning? Because that just right. doesn't register with him. But as an evangelical or whatever kind of Christian I was, I was all wrapped up in these hand-wringing questions about ultimate meaning. And when someone figures out there ain't no ultimate meaning and right. we got to make do with proximate meanings, you, you kind of look around and you shudder a little. Like yourself, and I try explaining this to my non-religious friends, but uh, when I lost faith, it wasn't a, it wasn't merely an intellectual thing. It started that way, but then I had a relationship with right. this Jesus. Yeah, I remember <laughs> it was praying, like a friend. I, I remember dying. at Bible college praying in. We actually had things called prayer closets. You know, closets yeah, in right. the dorm. You'd go to pray for privacy. I remember being really wrapped up into it, sincere, deeply, heart-crackingly sincere, and bawling in prayers, right? Right. And when you give up that ghost and you say, uh, you know, it's all a house of cards, you're losing. Yeah. Like, I was losing, basically, a very intimate, imaginary friend. I remember talking to Jesus all the time in my head, right? Right. And that's a comfort. People who never had that... They kind of say, well, aren't you glad that you're no longer psychotic? Well, that's not a good answer for the deeply emotionally satisfying stuff that I had that I no longer have. Okay, so I went through that phase, and then I got a hold of, again, I saw early on Cosmos, but it never really registered. I was too young, I guess. But I got a hold of, from Blockbuster, Cosmos again, and I went through, you know, uh, and I went through like a weekend of watching these <laughs> videotapes, that's how long ago it was, of Cosmos. And I saw that there was majesty in that view of life. There's something that you can sink your teeth into. Darwin, at the end of The Origin, has a phrase like, you know, there's grandeur in this view of life. I remember things like being a creationist my whole life and suddenly now being open to evolution watching a show, a program on PBS, or reading a book about a fish's fin uh, and how it's anatomically similar to our our hands. And for me, this wasn't scientific fact anymore that just went into my brain. I would hold out my hand and I would look at it and I would look at my fingers and I would think, 
my gosh, there's an unbroken thread back through mm. history that is right here. That connects you with right. all of, in quotes, creation. People out there, a lot of them, just take for granted, even, even more liberal folk, take for granted the idea that if you were to confine yourself to a naturalistic worldview, you would have such an impoverished universe uh, that you live in. Whereas I see so many of my secular humanist friends just in awe. Yeah. Uh, I, they, they live, I think, uh, again, the, the quotes, but they live the most spiritually grounded lives of anybody uh, that, I, that I bump into in the workaday right. world. You know, they, they tend to be the easiest going and they, you know, they have appreciation for their short and fleeting time on the planet. There are a lot of people out there who just are uh, darned happy people despite the fact that they have no uh, supernatural, they can't hang their hat on any faith claims or they don't want to. They kind of accept the brute truth about where it is that we are and how long we'll be here, but they nonetheless live exuberantly. Rabbi Sherwin Wine, who recently passed away, spoke to our group several years ago and said, it should be said he's the right. founder of the secular humanist Judaism movement, yes. right? Yeah, and mm-hmm. it, it, it was tragic when he died. Yeah, it was, it was a major loss. He talked about what we're talking about right now, but he framed it in the context of courage. Hmm. To him, that was one of the mighty secular humanist virtues because there is something wonderful that waits for you on that other side of doubt. Uh, but it's but you courage. have to have the balls to get there. Yeah. Pardon my expression, <laughs> and you know to let people know it ain't bleak. We we this worldview is competitive. Can give religion and that pablum a run for its money. I think that's our task. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the problem with that is that our cultural competitors can say, "Aha, you have a religion just like we have a religion." And then they use that strategically to say things like, if you teach evolution in the schools, you're breaking the separation of church and state. Now, on the other hand, I think there is something, in quotes, spiritual about this worldview, right. something that can fill your chest and you know, give you goosebumps. So how do you think, as a movement, using that word again, how are we doing overall in showing the public that? I think we're getting better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have a lot of work to do. It seems to me uh, both th- there's a certain segment of atheists and secular humanists and a certain segment of religious people who are both equally theological. They're always talking mm-hmm. God stuff. Right. And these topics interest me, but they certainly aren't right. universal among our, our, in our movement. You know, mm-hmm. uh, some people get together and only ever want to talk about another reason why God doesn't right. exist. Or right. I can see that if that's our only focus, it can get boring after a while because there's right. so much more to life than to debate how many angels don't dance on the head of a pin. <laughs> on the other hand, it works for me. It's my kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And some of that has to do with my, my background. Um, I love that the Center for Inquiry movement is much broader, much broader than religious skepticism. You know, our meetings at, in cities across the country aren't meetings where people get together to X out in God we trust and all their dollar bills. They're, they're meetings where people get together 
to celebrate life, right? Right, And they celebrate the passages of life and they're building communities, secular, non-religious communities, but communities. I think we could do a much better job at getting that message out, but we've really begun to see the uh, positive impact of our successes so mm-hmm. far. And uh, I think that's really a function of uh, Paul Kurtz's vision to advance this positive affirmative message and not just, uh, not just skewer other people's central beliefs. I was teaching a critical thinking class for the first time, and I jokingly told my students that some of them might hate me for the rest of their lives because if I can get through to you with some of these methods, you're going to be frustrated at the world in ways you hadn't been before. And it was just a joke. But uh, now, now I should point out there's nothing non-religious ab- about those areas. That You're we teaching teach. method, it's not inf- content. informal yeah. logic. I had several students come up to me as much as a, almost a year after the class was over. And it was so funny, the things that I would get. I, I had one, one girl say, I was at a state fair and out of nowhere, I was just looking at an exhibit selling some, some product, some natural product. And out of nowhere, it occurred to me, this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, I would have never realized that before. And I had another student come up and say, oh, my gosh, my professor's driving me nuts because he never cites his sources. And, and I just go crazy now whenever I see somebody who won't cite their source. And they, they all seemed frustrated, but there was a smile. There was this appreciation that, you know what, they know that now, and there's something empowering about that. There's something liberating about living in the real world. You know, most of the time we think being disillusioned is kind of a a bad thing. It's a discouraging thing. But we want people to become disillusioned, to get rid of their illusions. A good existential crisis can can be (laughs) a very positive thing in somebody's life. So uh, the the question that comes out of all of this is – I want to know what advice you would have to people. It might not be in a religious context. It's it, just any context where it's just dawning on them that there's this bigger world out there mm. and that they might just be able to find the tools to be able to confront it and do the hard work of carving out a reasoned worldview for themselves. What advice do you have as somebody who's on that path? Mm. I have two bits of advice to two different audiences. One, the person on that path you just mentioned, the advice I'd give is join a community of other inquirers. Mm -hmm. Get involved with other people interested in that conversation. Uh, Sure, you could try to do it alone in your bedroom, but that's no fun, and that's also a joke. But uh, (laughs) it's a joke about another topic. But uh, uh, join a community. Get involved with others who care about the same questions. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a community of other people who believe just like you necessarily. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, I'd encourage people to join Center for Inquiry communities right. all over North America. But even if you're an evangelical, uh, you might belong at some of these meetings at, a, at the Harvard Secular Society, one of our student groups. Years ago, the vice president was an evangelical Christian <laughs> who just didn't like going to the Campus Crusade praise and worship services at, at Harvard. He liked our meetings uh, at Harvard because they were substantial and they, they addressed these bigger questions uh, in, in an intellectually honest way. Now, he didn't agree with everyone. In fact, he mm-hmm. agreed probably with no one, except that he agreed the questions were important and right. worth asking. And they're not always asked uh, among the kind of praise and worship 
you know, get your acoustic guitar exactly. and strum out. Yeah. yeah. What you said just then doesn't at all surprise me. But what I think sometimes this surprises religious people. Um, I've noticed how many conversations I've gotten in with conservative Christians. They they seem shocked when they find out that they're that a secular humanist isn't necessarily a postmodernist. Mm. That we will stand on truth, so to speak, right. though some don't don't like that word. In many ways, I think some of the values uh, we share in common. You will hear from pulpits that. The world is a certain way, and it doesn't matter what you think about it. You need to get in line with that truth. You'll hear uh, calls for integrity and honesty, and I really feel that it was some of the values that they're not necessarily Christian values, but some of the values that I was taught in church actually led to my skepticism because I value integrity and honesty and all these things. Absolutely. To rejoin to that, and this is controversial among some uh, members of the atheist movement, but you know, darn Skippy, you're right. <laughs> we share a lot of values with our cultural competitors. Now we disagree up and down the line on many things, but right. we share uh, with many of them values of decency and honesty, and 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 uh, in fact, I'd consider those secular values rooted in our kind of democratic heritage. They argue they come from Judeo-Christian origins, and indeed they probably uh, in some sense do, even if you can trace uh, arguments uh, about these ethical questions to pre-Christian eras. That's why I prefer calling myself a secular humanist. Mm -hmm. I am an atheist, and I say so from Mm -hmm. every podium when it's appropriate. You know, I come out as gay if it's appropriate. I come out as an atheist if it's appropriate. I support Mm -hmm. Richard Dawkins' out campaign. But it seems to me that's not enough. I want everyone to know that I'm a skeptic of their religious beliefs, and that's only so they realize there are those of us around and that Mm -hmm. it's not a Christian nation. It's a nation comprised of a lot of Christians, but also skeptics and nullifidians and Buddhists and, Mm -hmm. you know, know, the most religiously pluralistic uh, country on the planet. If I tell you I'm a secular humanist, I tell you what I do believe in, mm-hmm. a whole right. host of values and principles that I believe are rooted in secular reasons without appealing to divine authority or revelation. But that's another argument. Um, but the point is there are, there are uh, ways to connect with my religious brethren mm-hmm. on many of those values, even if we get to those values in a different way. Now, they'll say you can't get to them at all. Some of them may say you can't get to them at all without appealing to right. God. And that's why we have to have the discussion because there are very, there are darn good reasons to be an ethical person mm-hmm. without appealing to some ancient mythology. In fact, I think there are better reasons and believing in God can sometimes stunt your moral development. Sure. I want my Christian buddies to know that argument. And if, they're, if they believe in being good, I want them to have the best reasons. Let the best ideas win. And, and don't just mindlessly and sheepishly follow uh, what you're told from the pulpit. should be said we're not an atheist organization, although I, I think m- the majority of us are atheist or mm-hmm. agnostic, right. skeptics sure. of religion. We're, we're a science advocacy and secularist organization. And we have liberal religious believers who support us. And we have little old nuns who support the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, which looks into the paranormal. They might believe in God, but they don't believe in ghosts. 
So ours is a much broader agenda, and I think that is one reason why we're able to have the uh, dramatic impact relative right. to the other yeah. organizations. I don't think it's a strategy for advancing our mission to be purist and only ever sit at a table with atheists, mm-hmm. uh, only ever talk to people who believe exactly like we do. There are a lot of allies from a lot of different uh, political and, and kind of social p- perspectives, economic perspectives, who can work with us around certain issues of concern without signing on the dotted line or saying, yes, I agree with the party line uh, completely. Uh, uh, that reminds me of one of the virtues of doubt uh, that meant so much to me when I did leave my religion because I never had that modeled to me, that attitude that... Uh, We don't demonize our enemies. We try to understand them. We try to put all the best arguments on the table, uh, that we open ourselves up to criticism. Should be said, not all uh, Christians share those values and not all atheists. I know some knee-jerk kind of know-nothing atheists who are as dogmatic about their skepticism. And it's not just atheism, maybe skepticism of, of Bigfoot or ghosts, right? Certainly. They're kind of armchair skeptics who reject any claim out of hand without looking into it. We're open-minded skeptics. And I think there's that same open-mindedness, that same commitment to asking the hard questions among some of our cultural competitors. Those are the ones Mm -hmm. we get along really well with. You know, we've had Mormon humanist dialogues. We had a Vatican humanist dialogue, a Baptist humanist dialogue. And, And when we have these events, when we put these on, it's because we care about the same questions, even though we know we're not going to arrive at the same answers. Right, right. You know, in some ways, it's the people who are critical and dedicated to dialogue and discovering truth, discovering the the best explanations for what's out there. Sometimes those people have more in common, even if they're on opposite sides of the aisle, than peers in their own sort of philosophy. Right, right. It's, it's that dedication to critical thinking. Okay, so the advice to the person on the path, join a community. Indeed, I'd invite people to join uh, center for Inquiry community. You look up the nearest center. We have 10 in North America. We have, I think, 16 CFI communities. We have 200 campus groups. So get involved. That's one bit of advice. I'd also give advice to people who are further along the path. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with someone who's just kind of starting that, that process? Um, people talk about a, you know, a journey of faith, Well, I want to talk about the journey of doubt. And uh, if a a new kind of skeptic joins a community I'm involved in, my knee-jerk response, or maybe not mine, but some of my buddies' Mm knee-jerk response might just be to wallop them with all the all the truth they can muster. Right. And maybe that's fun. But, you know, there's a virtue in listening to other people's wrestling with this and adding humanism to this skeptical enterprise, I think, is, is the ticket for uh, answering a lot of our strategic questions we ask ourselves as a movement. Uh, if, if a doubter comes to a Center for Inquiry meeting and says, yeah, I, I, of course, I doubt those fundamentalist claims, but I still kind of believe in crystals and chakras. You right. know, I don't, I don't want the, the atheist guy next to me calling him or her an idiot for still not, you know, buying the party line. Because so, you're not a baptized uh, secular. Absolutely. <laughs> the, there's, there should be no statement of beliefs among our community. Really, the only thing that should unite us is a commitment to 
uh, skeptically looking at things. Now it just so happens most of us agree up and down right. the line on these on these questions. Um, but the second bit of advice then is that we should respect people's journey of doubt mm-hmm. and and not expect people to uh, to believe exactly like I do on all these questions. Exactly. Amen to that, yeah. sir. <laughs> oh. Thank you for everything that you're doing in the skeptical community and uh, for Center for Inquiry and for Humanism. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. It was a fun back and forth, a great conversation. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Remember that our website is www.doubtcast.org. Our email, doubtcast at gmail.com. Please send us in your questions, comments, challenges, etc. Thanks for listening. Episodes, links, or to email us your comments, log on to www.doubtcast.org. Josh Dunnigan helped with recording. Our theme music, Apple Tree, is produced by Love Fossil and used with permission. Mm-hmm.